Salvete omnis. Laszlo Montgomery here. You're listening to the China History Podcast. My deepest thanks for tuning in. Other than the one on Empress Zhang Sun and a little bit of the Hainan Hunan history episodes, we haven't really gone this far back since the San Xingdui episodes from June of 2021. For today's CHP offering, we'll examine the legends and near misses surrounding the relations between the Roman Empire and China. In this part one of two episodes, the focus will be on the events during the later Han and Imperial Rome. But before we get to that, let me offer some background to set everything up. Rome's traditional founding by Romulus is pegged at April 21st, 753 BC, the early years of the spring and autumn period in China. 509 BC, the Roman Republic was founded. Confucius was in his early 40s traveling around eastern Zhou, China. And the history of the Roman Republic and Civil War would span the decades in China from the Warring States, the Qin Dynasty, and the Han up to 31 BC. The period of the Roman Empire from Caesar Augustus up to the partition in 395 AD spanned China's history from Wangmang's usurpation clear through to the Eastern Han, Three Kingdoms, and Eastern Jin. In the miserable final decades of the Western Roman Empire, 395 to 476, eh, weren't so great in China either. End of the Eastern Jin, the Sixteen Kingdoms, and the Liu Song. So that's the big picture from higher up than even Felix Baumgartner ever rose. That's the backdrop, and now we'll examine... How was it that these two greatest empires in the world, one on the eastern side and one on the western side, tried and failed to reach out to one another and establish direct diplomatic relations? A Roman map from 20 AD shows China, the land of Ceres, in the farthest possible distance from Rome and Europe. Ptolemy's map from 150 AD again showed China on the easternmost edge of the map, far from Rome. This shows that Romans were at least fully aware that China existed, and it was in a place far, far away. The moon and Mars are closer to us in our day than China was to Rome back then. Always walking around hand-in-hand with proven archaeological or historical evidence is the act of historical speculation. And where the earliest Sino-Roman relations are concerned, that's what we mostly have to deal with. When discussing these times from antiquity, usually the evidence before us is so scanty, we can only surmise based on what little we know for certain about what might have happened. What Chinese historians and record keepers wrote about Rome prior to and during the time of the empire was contained mainly in five works. The Annals of the Later Han, written during the Jin, the Book of Later Han, written during the Liu Song, a book called the Wei Lue, a brief history of Wei, written during the Three Kingdoms, and excerpts from the Book of Liang and Jin, both compiled during the Tang. One quick word, I hope you don't mind, uh, about the brief history of Wei. This work, the Wei Lue, is a good example of one of these important ancient Chinese works that didn't make it down to our time. No extant copies exist that we know of. But thankfully, oftentimes throughout Chinese history, these early writings that were lost for any number of reasons, 
would be quoted or included verbatim in later works or appear in detailed footnotes in part or in full. The Wei Liu, A Brief History of Wei, written by Yu Huan. This is one of those works that's not part of China's official historical canon, but it's still considered important, especially where Chinese knowledge of Rome was concerned. Guys like Yu Huan, who wrote these works without imperial commission, were called zashers, miscellaneous histories or historians. In the case of this work, this Wei Liu, we can read almost the sum toto of China's knowledge of Rome in the 3rd century, which was, for the most part, a collection of wild legends and second- and third-hand accounts. It parroted everything about Da Qin mentioned in the Book of Later Han, with some additional info learned up to Yu Huan's time in the Three Kingdoms period. Great Qin? That's how Rome was referred to in these later Han writings. Da Qin, and to a lesser extent, Li Qian. Scholars are thankful for the Wei Liu, for the info it provides about geography, administration, trade, the economies of the region, agriculture. But like with all these official histories of these times, there's hardly ever anything about who the people were. The sad truth was, these two great empires knew very little about one another. The Silk Road, as we understand it today, was unknown in the time of Augustus Caesar, who reigned during the final decades of the Western Han. Even back then, what these two empires knew of each other was still just a collection of myths. If anyone ever traveled the distance from China to Rome or Rome to China, there's no record of such a feat. But we know there was a very robust trade that grew partly as a result of having the two biggest economies in the world on opposite sides of the map. Chinese silk was the raw material that powered the whole system. Chinese merchants would offload their silk products in the various oasis towns in Xinjiang. From Xinjiang, it would flow through another trading network that transported the goods to where Afghanistan and India are today. And then next door to them were the Persians or Parthians, And they would be the ones who brought these goods to Rome's eastern provinces in Turkey and the Levant. And it would be those merchants who took everything to markets that sold these Chinese goods to the richest inhabitants of the Roman Empire. The only ones who could afford silk or anything that came from China. The Silk Road as we understand it in our day, back then was just a series of regional trade routes and not one single network. For the earliest history of Sino-Roman relations, it's once again a bowl of some very, very thin gruel. The stories are told around a series of events that happened in 36 BC, 97 AD, 166, 226, and 284. You could spend hours combing the internet about this subject, and what you'll find are Variations of the same stories that happened during these five different years. That's as far back as the history of Sino-Roman relations goes. I'm first going to talk a little bit about Homer Dubbs and his theory about the lost Roman legion and Qian in Gansu province. This far-out theory sort of took on a life of its own starting in the mid-20th century. I spent some time 
going down a couple rabbit holes on the internet where the merits of this theory were vigorously discussed on a lot of platforms. Homer Hassenflug Dubs was, in his day, a very respected and eccentric sinologist in the Joseph Needham mold. He had quite an impressive CV. Besides this 48-page work he published called A Roman City in Ancient China, Dubs was best remembered as the chair of Chinese at Oxford from 1947 and 1959. This position was once filled by James Legg himself. Today it's called the Shaw Professor of Chinese, named after Sir Run Run Shaw, who ponied up three million pounds sterling to endow this distinguished chair at the famous Oxford. There's an old CHP episode floating around out there about the life of Run Run Shaw that you're cordially invited to listen to. Dubs had played a front and center role in translating portions of the Book of Han, the Han Shu. He grew up in China, son of missionaries, a polymath in all ways, and among his many passions was the history of contacts between Rome and China during the early Silk Road era, the first century BC. This account given by Dubs sounds more like a story than real hardcore history. According to Homer Dubs, Surviving soldiers from legions that fought under Marcus Crassus and were defeated in 53 B.C. by the Parthian army at Carrhae lived on to fight another day, but not for Rome. Whoever these Roman survivors were who fought at Carrhae in 53 B.C., there's no further mention anywhere about what happened to them. Executed by the Parthians, or used as slaves, or mercenaries— We know many were taken captive. Plutarch said 10,000. Homer Dubbs said, this is what happened. After Carey, these captured Roman soldiers were first taken to somewhere in Afghanistan and later to an area in Uzbekistan. And then later on, this group had dwindled down to 145. How these Romans were employed by their captors, it's not known. None of the Chinese sources mentions anything about the fate of these soldiers. During the Han Xiongnu Wars, fought between 139 BC to 89 AD, somehow these 145 survivors of Kare at 53 BC ended up fighting on the side of Zhizhu Chanyu, the leader of these Xiongnu in the west of China. The Xiongnu in the east had made peace with the Han, but not these ones in the West, led by Jurjur. Homer Dubs hung his hat on an excerpt from the later book of Han that mentioned about a Han Xiongnu battle between the two opposing sides in 36 BC that stated, quote, Outside the wall, horsemen gallop about, and more than a hundred foot soldiers are lined up on either side of the gate in a fish-scale formation, end quote. This so-called fish-scale formation was the aha moment for Dubs. Two things. First, in any prior Chinese military treatises, there's nothing written about this infantry tactic. He said this was plainly a kind of military maneuver akin to the Roman testudo formation. You've seen this in videos and movies, perhaps, or certainly if you watch the HBO miniseries Rome. When engaging or being engaged by the enemy, Roman soldiers would march and join their shields together in such a way that when you saw it, it appeared like fish scales or dragon scales. Furthermore, the Book of Later Han 
also mentions these wooden palisades that were constructed in double rows to protect the approach to the Xiongnu fort. And these kinds of things were right out of the Roman playbook, but not yet in use in China. When you put all these pieces together, even though some of them don't fit perfectly, many believe Homer Dubbs was spot on with his theory about who these fair-haired soldiers were fighting alongside Zhuzhir Chanyu's army on that day in 36 BC, employing these military maneuvers associated with Roman armies. In this battle that bears the Chanyu's name, Zhuzhir was defeated by the Han army led by Chan Tang and Ganyan Shou. And these mysterious soldiers from far beyond the western regions, fighting on the Xiongnu side, were then settled by the Chinese on lands in Gansu. And this place was given the name that Rome was also known by, Li Qian. This city no longer exists by this name, but it's been tracked down to somewhere within the city of Jinchang, Yongchang County, right within the Gansu Hexi Corridor, where so many Silk Road travelers had passed through. In the most ancient texts, Li Qian was the name used for the city of Alexandria, and scholars have generally agreed that in the Book of Later Han, that's how historians denoted the Roman Empire. It's presumed that following the defeat of his army and the beheading of Zhuzhir Chanyu, the only Xiongnu Chanyu to ever be killed by Han Chinese forces, the Han authorities placed these surviving soldiers in Li Qian to live out their days as additional guardians of the frontier. And what became of them after that is all the stuff of speculation and legends. Now, as plausible as this theory sounds, it has its detractors. And some of these historians and private investigators of events from ancient times have pretty much placed Homer Dubbs in the same boat as Gavin Menzies. Many of you might recall his book that came out in 2002 and the theories concerning the travels of Admiral Zheng He in the early Ming Dynasty. Menzies had written about how, during the voyages of Zheng He's other admirals, they went on to discover the New World and other undiscovered places in the 1420s and 30s, just prior to the European Age of Exploration. Now, no one is arguing with Ban Gu and Ban Zhao, the writers of the Book of Later Han, as far as the presence of Indo-European-looking soldiers fighting alongside Zhuzhir Chanyu's Xiongnu army. But a line has been drawn in the sand as far as whether or not these men, who were neither Xiongnu nor Han Chinese, were among those who had set out from Syria with Marcus Crassus in 55 BC in the direction of Parthia. Homer Dubs suggested they were. But even if they were the ones who fought at Carrae, they'd have to consider their ages by 36 BC and the average lifespan of a first century BC soldier. By the time of the Battle of Churcher, these former Roman legionaries would have been in their 50s and 60s, a little long in the tooth, I'd say, to be taken on the Han Imperial Army. But perhaps most importantly... If you listen to my 12-part history of Xinjiang series, I mentioned this. From even before the time of the Han Dynasty adventurer Zhang Qian, late 2nd century BC, people who lived close enough to this Eurasian steppe that linked East and West, Indo-Europeans, Indo-Iranians, and those races of Eastern Asia, 
Mongol, Turkic, Han, and others. They were constantly mixing in peaceful ways, migrating back and forth. So these hundred or 150 fighters really could have been anyone and not necessarily Roman legionaries who fought under Crassus and went down in ignoble defeat at the Battle of Carrhae. And despite all that, there's plenty of vigorous discussion online and in YouTube comments to the plethora of videos that mention this phantom legion of the Roman Empire and their fish-scale formation during battle. Now, researchers tested the DNA of these people in a certain village in this Yongchang County in Gansu. Today, it's called Zhulai Jai. When you come face-to-face with some of the residents of this off-the-beaten-path kind of place in the middle of nowhere you could see certain European features. And DNA testing confirmed these people indeed had Indo-European and Indo-Iranian ancestors. Dubs said these people were survivors of Karay. But most people familiar with the history and the science believe they could have been anybody. No shortage of those people in the region where this battle was fought, near where the borders of Kazakhstan, Tajikistan, and Kyrgyzstan meet not far from where the Battle of Talas would be fought 787 years later. So this whole matter of these Roman troops ending up in Gansu province has a position of honor inside the Museum of Popular and Dubious History Topics. By the way, the residents in and around Zhulai Chai, where these faux descendants of Crassus' army reside today, they've tried to cash in on the whole history-tourism craze, Tourists have been lured to Jilai Jai, who might be interested to get a selfie with one of the local residents whose ancestors from more than 80 generations ago fought under Marcus Crassus. I read something from one writer who called this whole thing the Disneyfication of pseudo-history. I think that sums it up all right. So this whole thing interesting as it is, doesn't tell us much about Sino-Roman relations except that there weren't any, which brings us to what's been accepted as the first official embassy from China to Rome for which we have reliable recorded evidence. This was the famous Ganying mission of 97 AD. This was called for by Ban Chao, brother of the writers of the later book of Han, Ban Gu and Ban Zhao, This story takes place during this amazing period in world history. From the time of Augustus in 31 BC to the death of Marcus Aurelius in 180, you had the Pax Romana, keeping everything peaceful in Rome's world and beyond. And this peace created an environment that was wholly conducive to regional trade and for people to freely move about without fear of getting caught up in any war or violent uprising. We'll see this again during the Pax Mongolica of the 13th and 14th centuries. The mission of 97 AD that sent Gan Ying to Rome didn't come from the Han Emperor. It came, as I said, from Ban Chao, his main representative watching over things in and around present-day Xinjiang, then known as the Western regions. It was Ban Chao's armies that, during the 70s and 80s, had pacified this Xinjiang region, He instructed one of his men, named Gan Ying, to lead an embassy to Rome and to find out as much as he could about this greatest state in the West, as it was known. This went down as the first time some sort of official embassy was sent to Rome that was noted 
in Chinese official histories. The Pax Romana delivered peace to all the lands between Rome and China, or at least India. So 97 AD was a good time to set out and take advantage of the times and once and for all establish direct relations between China and Rome. There were two major political entities that stood in between the two great empires of the East and West. One was the Kushan Kingdom in today's northern India, Nepal, Pakistan, and Afghanistan. The other was the Parthian Empire that covered parts of Iraq and Iran. Parthia, referred to as Anxi in the Chinese texts, had traditionally been Rome's primary political enemy. In 63 AD, a peace was signed between Rome and Parthia that ended the hostilities. So much Silk Road traffic passed through Central Asia, and with Parthia being next door to the Roman Empire and having very little themselves in tradable commodities, their wealth was amassed in their capacity as commercial middlemen, acting as the purchaser of goods from China, mainly silk, and selling it to Roman importers who supplied their home markets. It had been this way going back to a trade deal made between Mithridates II and Han Emperor Wu in 115 BC. Without the trade to profit off of, Parthia's economic fortunes would be greatly diminished. So you can probably imagine the last thing they would ever want to see, other than some interstellar object smashing into the earth, was to see Rome and China establish direct diplomatic relations and cozy up to each other. This would have had a devastating impact on Parthia's economy, since who needed them anymore once Roman importers could buy their silk directly from Chinese exporters? So this Ganying embassy to Rome brought back all kinds of information that he gave to Ban Chao upon his return. And all of Ganying's remarks about not only Rome, but all the places he visited as well, were duly recorded in the official histories. A lot was learned, and not all of it necessarily accurate, except there was one caveat to all of this. Ganying never made it to Rome. Passages from the ancient books insinuate that because of Parthia's political and economic interests, these two greatest empires in the world remained unacquainted. There are four great bodies of water that are all sort of right near each other. The Caspian Sea, the Black Sea, the Persian Gulf, and the eastern shores of the Mediterranean. Which one of these was the western sea that Ganying mentioned he made it to? No one could say for sure. Without a mildly accurate map of the world and no knowledge of what lay beyond the lands beyond China's borders, one's left making a lot of wild guesses. We know Ganying never made it to Rome. We're not exactly sure how far he got. But we do know he convened with many fellow travelers of the road who had been to Rome themselves or had heard about it firsthand from someone who had been there. And whatever stories Ganying was able to compile, he brought them all back and presented his findings to Ban Chao. And this narrative from Ganying was later inscribed into the later book of Han, chapter 118 on the Western regions, as well as in the brief history of Wei, the Wei Lue. And it was clearly mentioned that Ganying was tricked by the Parthians into not continuing on to Rome. It's inferred they fed him exaggerated info regarding Rome's further distance and the perils in trying to get there. And as the history said it, due to Parthia's jealousy to protect the 
current trading regimen, they successfully dissuaded Ganying from going any further. I could tell you up until the internet age, when manufacturing sources became open source, traders would always go to great lengths, including spreading misinformation and rumors, to dupe their competitors and protect their trade sources. And so the two-way trade between products made within the Roman Empire continued to find their way to China via a supply chain of middlemen who made the deals that brought these luxury products and wares to Han Dynasty China. There were many commodities traded back and forth, but most of those mentioned are glassware and luxurious woven textiles from Syria and Alexandria, silver and gold coins from Spain and the Balkans. There was also sea coral from the Mediterranean and Red Seas. Coral wasn't a big sensation in the Roman world, but partially due to Buddhism, it was very prized in India and China. Amber from Scandinavian lands and cinnabar from the Horn of Africa. Those two were also commodities China traded their silk and wares for. As far as what the Chinese buyers and consumers believed, all of these products came from Rome. They didn't differentiate the city from the provinces. Goods from China made their way west along the Silk Road where they were all sold somewhere in the markets of Xinjiang. Someone further to the south to sell to the Kushan kingdom. But goods destined for the Eternal City, after exchanging hands in Xinjiang, would mostly be sold in Merv. That's today's Mari in Turkmenistan. It's unlikely any Chinese traders ever made it west of Merv. That was a great trading entrepot at that time, and remained so until the Mongols wrecked the place in the 13th century. The next milestone we'll look at in this episode is the 166 Embassy, another one with an asterisk attached to it. This one was allegedly sent by the Roman Emperor Antoninus Pius, or his son Antoninus Marcus Aurelius. This was one of those things that was complicated due to the death of the emperor after this embassy departed from the Eastern Empire. This group, who eventually called on the Han Emperor Juan in 166, came via the sea routes established by the Maritime Silk Road. As the good old days for both of these two great empires started to appear in their respective rearview mirrors, the Pax Romana slowly began to evaporate, and with land routes not as safe as they used to be, this drove even more merchants to the seas. This delegation made landfall at the Zhunan Commandery, the southernmost outpost of the Han Dynasty, if you recall from the six-part series on China-Vietnam history, the second period of China domination over Vietnam lasted from 43 to 544. Zhunan was the end of the line as far as Han political and military control of the South went. It was located in the central part of today's Vietnam. From there, this delegation made its way all the way to Luoyang, the eastern Han capital. And there they got to meet Emperor Huan, who was no doubt aware of the political prestige this gave him, receiving emissaries from the Roman Empire. At last, for the first time, finally, Rome and China came together. Remember that asterisk I was talking about? Well, we could say with a high degree of certainty that these men, whoever they were, came from the Roman Empire. They said they represented Emperor Andun, presumably Antoninus, and they came bearing gifts and everything all looked official. 
There's nothing in the Roman record that mentions this 166 mission. And from the looks of the -the run-of-the-mill gifts they brought with them that could have been procured in any of the major trading ports between China and India, they appeared a little chintzy. It was noted that they brought rhino horns, ivory, and tortoise shells, the endangered species trifecta. Because of this, it's been suggested that these Roman emissaries were really nothing more than merchants posing as ambassadors from the Roman emperor. So although it was noted that Han Emperor Huan met with them, it's debatable whether they actually represented the emperor in Rome. Sixty years later, in the thick of the Three Kingdoms period, someone who was described in the Book of Liang as a merchant who had come all the way from Rome arrived off the coast of Jiaozhi, China's prized territory in present-day northern Vietnam. This was in 226, the fifth year of the Huangwu era of the Eastern Wu Emperor Sun Quan. This person, after making landfall in Vietnam, was taken swiftly north to Sun Quan in Wuchang, and it's written that upon request, this person named Qin Lun delivered a report to the emperor explaining about the place he came from. Because he came from Rome, or Da Qin, the custom of the day in China was to give these foreigners this Qin surname to signify they were Roman, just like they used to give the surname Ma to Muslims. Not much else to say about this Qin Lun embassy of 226 beyond this. The Jin Shu also mentions that when Sun Quan moved his capital in 229 to Jianye, modern-day Nanjing, he brought Qin Lun with him. And there, in Nanjing, this Roman stayed for a few years, the guest of Sun Quan. And afterwards, he returned to Rome. There's one more important mention in the Book of Jin from 284 concerning another embassy sent from Da Qin, but there's little of substance about this visitor from Rome to the court of Jin Dynasty founder Emperor Wu, a.k.a. Sima Yan. It was recorded that this tribute mission came to Jin Wu Di's court, but little else beyond that. So in looking back, what have we learned I think the biggest story is that, through the quirks of history and geography to a great extent, the diplomats from the Roman Empire and China failed to meet in person and have any productive or substantive discussions or relations. What might have come from that? We could speculate till the end of time. Two great and advanced empires... They were separated by the farthest possible land distance from one another. And for this reason, mostly, when both empires were at their height, they remained unfamiliar to each other. The popular historical narrative going back to the ancient books says it was all Parthia's fault for keeping them apart. There's a ton of fine print if you want to dig deep into the official works that chronicle the history of this relationship. When you Google Sino-Roman relations, you'll get millions of hits with all the same dates and stories. For the most part, that's all we have. The Phantom Legion of Marcus Crassus, Gan Ying's embassy in 97, the dubious Roman mission of 166 to the court of Han Emperor Huan, the one mentioned in 226 to the eastern kingdom of Wu, and the one mentioned in the Liangshu in 284 about the delegation that visited the Jin dynasty court of Emperor Wu. Not a lot of meat in that Jianbing. But it's all good history, and it's always thought-provoking to ponder the what-ifs. Next time we meet, 
We'll finish up with more Sino-Roman relations. During the Tang, Song, and Yuan dynasties, there was all kinds of action with the Byzantine Empire. So we'll look at all that. You might want to mark that in your calendar. Once again, if you'd like to show some human kindness, feel free to go to the teacup.media website. Hit the support button, and there are a number of ways to help me to make it through the night. Thank you one and all for listening. This is Laszlo Montgomery signing off from Los Angeles, Cali, in the year of the water tiger. Please, everyone, consider coming back again next time for another exciting episode of the China History Podcast.